Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. Due to the ongoing global pandemic, the Book Fair Collective decided to move their event online again this year. So for the second year in a row, From Embers is teaming up with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair to release presentations over our podcast platform. Recordings of these Voices of Resistance were conducted on unceded Indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events, check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca. And listeners in the Victoria area are encouraged to visit Camus Books at 2620 Quadra Street or online at camus.ca for anarchist publications and more. And to find out more about our regular anarchist podcast, go to fromembers.libsyn.com or simply search From Embers in your favorite podcast app. Hey, my name is Nathan Mott, coming to you from Unceded, Lekwaman, and Wetjana Territory in so-called Victoria, B.C. I'd also like to acknowledge the different Lekwaman nations of the Tarnese and the Cuomo people. I'm proud to introduce my comrade, Scott Watt, artist and author, Gordon. Gordell is an indigenous writer, artist, and activist of the Kratwati Nation. She is the author and illustrator of the 500 Years of Resistance comic book, the Anti-Capitalist Resistance comic book, and the Antifa comic book. All three are published by Arsenal Boltfront in Vancouver, Canada as well as the author of the 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance, published by A.K. Press in Oakland, California. His art and writing have also been published in numerous periodicals, including Biopat, Canadian Dimension, Red Wire, Red Rising Magazine, and the Dominion, Recharty, Ahmadine Aquabat, Intro Claymat, Seattle Weekly, and Broken Pencil. Gord is someone I have respected and admired for many years. She taught me a lot in terms of solidarity, anarchism, and resistance. She has also alerted me to issues surrounding the Batavist ideology through his analysis. As an anarchist individual, he has dedicated his life to the fight against colonization. Chances like this one to interview someone so spared and knowledgeable of few and far between. Thank you, George, for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. And uh, how are you doing, by the way? I'm doing good. Uh, I finished the comic a few months ago, and so I've just been working on uh, other art projects like carvings and paintings and whatnot, and uh, raising my daughter. That's mostly what I've been focused on. So, yeah, I'm doing good. Good, good, good. That's great to hear. Um, so the first question uh, I have for you today is that 
I read a Dan Kavid, the first book that you wrote of 500 years of redemption for the first edition. And the community is very enthusiastic about the second edition, complete with 50 new pages, uh, done in color, and redrawn upward. Can you tell us about some of these changes and the evolution of this new edition? Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, originally I published the, the 500 Years comic was originally published, I think it was in 2010 or 2011. And a lot of those, um, a lot of the artwork was actually from, uh, you know, like 1998 or 1999. And I, th I, when I, when I, whenever I would look at that first comic edition uh, over the years, I just felt like I could do a lot better now, especially with the other comics I've done. And I feel like my artwork improved a lot. And I had a lot more access to historical information, historical resources nowadays. So I really wanted to redo the comic and really do justice to, you know, 500 years of Indigenous resistance. So I approached Arsenal a couple of years ago about if they would be interested in doing a new revised edition. And they agreed. So I started to work on it. Um, yeah, I've added, uh, well, there's, it's 120 pages in total and it's in color. Um I learned how to do a lot of computer graphic work so I can scan my black and white illustrations in and color them and add the text. So I think that improved the quality a lot. Um, like I mentioned, I was able to access a lot more uh, hi historical resources. And so I think that really added to filling the history out and correcting a lot of historical inaccuracies that were in the first edition. Um, Arsenal, I think like the first 500 years comic was the first uh, comic graphic novel that they published and over the years they've published many more so now I think they have a better idea of what what it takes to make a good graphic novel so for this new edition they've gotten they made the the, the page size bigger they use better quality paper um, and I think it, it's just like so much better I mean actually like I can't even look at that first edition anymore because I just feel it's like such poor quality. So I'm really happy that this new edition has been done. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's updated. It includes like uh, resistance actions from the last 10 years. So I'm really happy with how it's uh, come out. Uh, and what term do you prefer? Uh, comic book or graphic novel? I just, I kind of use the terms interchangeably. I mean, Arsenal's labeled it a comic book. I think other people might say it's a graphic novel, but I mean, they're to me, they're both kind of the same. It's like graphic novel was a term to me that kind of came up to, to sell these comics as more mature and for an audience that had, as ch children had read comics and now they're adults and they wanted to, I think, um, kind of market uh, comics to an older audience. So, but anyway, I, I just use comic. Okay, cool. Well, that's or graphic awesome. novel interchangeably. That's that, 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 um, So you mentioned research and art and changing the historical inaccuracies that you acknowledge were in the first edition. So that leads into uh, my next question is, did anything change in the way of how you were able to read the, the most recent uprising that they done in lot in North Dakota, uh, the, um, 
the greatest venue with Dalton Kirkwood, um, and as you mentioned, other happening and other happening that have happened over the last decade. How did you go about acquiring this new information, sort of? Well, with these, with the more current um, resistance actions, it's uh, it's kind of a lot easier because. Well, for some of those, I was maintaining my website, the Warrior Publications website. So every day I was like gathering these articles and graphics and posting them onto my website. So I was, you know, in some way uh, much more involved in uh, communicating this stuff. And it was a lot easier just to go through that information rather than going through history books of something that happened, you know, two or 300 years ago. And then plus, uh, uh, I mean, I was involved in mobilizing some of the solidarity protests for some of these actions, and uh, many of our comrades were. So it was a bit easier to get a lot of this information together. The only uh, uh, drawback to that is then I have like vast amounts of information that I really have to narrow down to just like a couple pages, because that's what I allocated for some of these more recent actions in, in the new comic book. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the difference between the historical stuff and the more recent stuff is... I mean, some of these things I was involved in, or I know I know intimately the people that were involved in some of these actions. So there is kind of a difference. And um, uh, I kind of enjoy the more modern stuff because I kind of have better insight. And the historical stuff, you're kind of relying on interpreting to a certain extent uh, the accounts written by mostly European uh, colonial historians. Uh, you know you know what I mean? But yeah, so that's about that. Uh, Absolutely. Um, yeah, it... Uh... It, it from the colonial colonial perspective and not the people that were actually involved 200 years ago. You know, it was, it was a foreign interpretation for sure. And uh, I, I agree with you there. Um, so for, for people who are uh, interested in writing or amateur writers, how did you... Um, you mentioned you had a vast array of information. Um, how did you manage to know all down to, to fit a couple pages? Yeah, well, what I normally do is I start gathering as much information as I can, and I, I kind of write a story, like a basic historical account. And then from that, I have to break it down into the pages and the actual panels and what, what the text boxes are going to be. So when I'm doing that, um, I have to be aware of how much art I have on a panel and how much text is going to take up, you know, is how much art is going to be covered by text. So it's, um, it's quite a process of editing down and figuring out what's the most important thing I want to say about this historical account. And um, one, one trick I learned was, uh, sometimes when I when I'm learning something and I gather all this information and I've educated myself, to me it's like I want to, I want everybody to know the whole story. But sometimes I have to take a break and step away from the writing and come back a little while later because I'll I'll have calmed down a bit and I can look at the the text and I can say okay this isn't really that important this isn't really that important and so it's this process of just constantly narrowing the story down till I get the most essential parts of it, the most important parts that I think are important for what the comic is, is all about. And that's resistance and, you know, acts of genocide or whatever, and how people organize to fight these colonial powers. 
So that's some of the process I go through. And then I also have to uh, look at gathering graphics because I want it to be historically accurate. Like what kind of clothing did people wear? What were their shelters? What kind of weapons did they have? All this type of stuff. So then when I look at resources, well, there's a whole lot of resources on the internet now. And some of these things are like, you only really find them on the internet. Like for example, with the Taino, it was really hard finding written written material, like published books about the Taino. But if I go on the on the internet, there are Taino groups who've established their own websites and they have their own histories and they talk about their culture and all this stuff. So that's one, one area. And then of course, there are a lot of published materials about you know others, other peoples and their struggles against colonialism. And there's also like um, almost like military studies about anti-colonial warfare. Um, there's like those Osprey Men at Arms series of small books. And there's, they have a whole bunch of them about the Aztecs and about the Inca and about conquistadors and stuff. So all of that I was able to access, which I wasn't really able to do with the first edition because I was, I just, a lot of times I didn't even have internet where I was and I was just able to grab little snippets of information wherever I could. So it was quite different this time around. So you mentioned the, the personal journey that, um, that doing it worked and being a frontline, uh, resistant, uh, member involved. And that leads me into my next question. As an indigenous anarchist father, uh, and frontline resistant, uh, worker member, how did the movement make you feel? And what are your thoughts about the effectiveness? Um, so what is the dumb of all these resistance movement? And where do you hope to go from here in terms of plastic and permanent outcome? Well, I think, uh, I mean, some of these movements were much more effective than other movements. And I think one of the things about history is like we can look at these we can look at these and try to figure out, you know, what what made an effective resistance movement and why were some others like uh, more quickly defeated? And if, well, I mean, one example is you look at the, the culture and the form of social organization that some different nations had. So if you look at the Mexica, the Aztec or the Inca, I mean, these were large empires. They were able to mobilize tens of thousands of warriors into the field for battle They'd conquered all the surrounding regions around them. Um, and yet when they encountered the Spanish conquistadors, they were fairly quickly defeated. You know, within the space of five to 10 years, these empires were basically defeated and the Spaniards uh, took control. And But then if you look at the Mapuche, they were, they were never conquered by the Spanish. They fought them for three centuries and were still undefeated at the end of that. And so if you look at the social organization, we, you know, the Mexica or Aztec and the Inca were these empires and the Spanish were able to capture the ruling elite. And once they did that, the whole empire kind of uh, fell apart. I mean, in the case of the Inca, they intervened in a civil war and, you know, took one of the, the rulers hostage, which is what uh, happened in, in uh, Mexico as well. So just looking at that, you can see these 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 empires that seem so strong and monolithic were actually easily defeated because of this this hierarchy that they were built upon. Because once the once the ruling elite were captured, everything else fell apart. The Mapuche were more autonomous. 
there were decentralized communities that came together in times of war. They had a very strong warrior culture and they adopt, their social organization and culture enabled them to adopt very quickly. And they actually took a lot of the Spanish military tactics and used them against the Spanish. So for example, the Mapuche started, they developed uh, heavy leather armor. They developed the pike formation against the Spanish cavalry, which was the only effective military tactic against cavalry and was the, was the norm in Europe, European battlefields at the time was infantry formed pike formations and could defeat cavalry. So that's what the Mapuche did. And then on top of that, the Mapuche developed their own cavalry and they were actually able to defeat the Spanish cavalry in open battle. And so uh, to me, the, to me that when I was learning this, I was just like, this is so awesome. Like, this is like, this is how you want to fight a colonial power that comes in, has superior weapons, has uh, in some ways superior tactics. Like you can, you can adopt and you can uh, improvise and you can, uh, you know, take the battle to them. Whereas with the Aztec and the Inca, because there is such a, a hierarchy, the ruling class, once they were, uh, you know, uh, destabilized, they weren't able to uh, respond to any of these new tactics and strategies that the Spanish brought in. Um, so that's one example of what, um, you know, I think the real value of history and with my comic, I focus a lot on tactics because I think that's an important part of a conflict is you have to have good tactics and you have to have good strategy. So that's some of the stuff I was trying to get into my comic um, in terms. I mean, some of the tactics aren't going to be that useful. Uh, you know, the I think the the Mapuche and the Maya uh one of their responses to the cavalry, which was probably the most potent weapon the Spanish arrived with, was their cavalry. I mean, they would dig, uh, they would dig pits and put in spikes and then cover the pits so that the horses would ride over them and fall into them, right, and get impaled. I mean, that kind of tactic we're not, <laughs> we might not find that type of tactic very useful today, but the, the idea is there. So I think there's a lot we can learn strategically and tactically from these movements that have gone before us. In terms of uh, permanent outcomes, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the victory at Oka from 1990, I mean, that appears to be a fairly permanent victory. The, the golf course was never expanded. The condominiums were never built. Elsie Pugtug, I mean, uh, New Brunswick at this point, I believe they still have a moratorium on fracking. So, I mean, these, these types of victories, I mean, you, maybe they're not, you know, in a few years, New Brunswick might change and we're going to go start fracking again. But I mean, that's just like the whole thing of resistance. You're fighting this anti-colonial struggle. You know, the colonial state still exists. And now, um, you know, for me, the anti-colonial thing, like it has to be also anti-capitalist. So we still have this anti-capitalist resistance movement that's going on. And so you're not really going to have a permanent outcome until you have a defeat of the colonial state and the whole capitalist system and this is like a long-term process that we're involved in but as we you know if we look at it now we can see the systems like fracturing it's got all kinds of problems right it's got uh multiple multiple things happening you got uh the climate crisis you got e economic crisis right now it's, which has really been compounded by the covid pandemic so you got all these things going on all this instability going on and if we look at the future i mean it's not just resistance. We have to. I think we have to think about survival in the long term because the systems. I think it's showing that it's not going to be uh, stable for too much longer. We've already had hits to our our supply system through COVID, the COVID pandemic. 
Um, so there's a lot going on right now. There's a lot of change going on. Change always provides. It's only for those who are prepared to take advantage of these opportunities, though. So I think that's kind of where we're at now. Okay. So I have a couple of questions that came out of your response. And we're going to likely uh, get a number of anarchists listening to the podcast and they're going to understand the fraud behind centralization and hierarchy that the one can empire goes as opposed to the other. Sorry, I can't remember the name, but uh, the other one that was more autonomous and collective. For those of you who aren't familiar, what, what are some of the flaws with the hierarchical nature of a society like that? Why did it, more specifically, why did it make it easier for the Spanish to conquer that, uh, that visually, that the big empire? Well, I think one thing, like I mentioned, was uh, they were able to capture the ruling class. I mean, um, I think Cortez in Mexico actually, you know, took Montezuma uh, captive and held him for uh, many, many months, I think almost a year, and basically dictated to him uh, orders that he would give to the empire and all this kind of stuff. So you have the capture of the ruling elite. And then the empire itself isn't like a homogenous entity. It's not a people. It's an empire that has imposed itself on other nations surrounding it. And so these nations are constantly under stress from the oppressor. Uh, and they're, you know, they're, they're probably always seeking some way to undermine the oppressor. And when Cortes and a few hundred conquistadors arrived and with this, you know, superior weaponry and that some of those nations that had been conquered by the Mexica and or that were still fighting with them uh, were, you know, they saw an opportunity to uprise and fight against the Mexica. And so that's what happened. And the same with the Inca. I mean, the Inca had imposed themselves on all these other nations. And when the Spanish came in and with the civil war as well, all this instability. So a lot of these uh, other these nations that had been oppressed by these empires actually allied themselves with the conquistadors. And so in Mexico, the you know, these these nations that allied with the conquistadors, they provided tens of thousands of warriors to fight this war against the Mexica. So, I mean, that's that's two major flaws with this imperial system. One is you have the capture of the ruling the ruling elite, the ruling class, and then you have an empire that's only held together because of the ruling class, able to issue its dictates and mobilize uh, its forces to maintain control. So I think that's two main things about why an empire like the Mexica or the Inca collapsed so quickly. Okay, that 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 makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense, and um, that kind of brings me to my next question. Because I was watching on the media the other day, and I I watched uh, a five minute movie on the Landy Village uh, being started by a sister, Kathy Rollins, and I was curious to learn uh, your thoughts about whether they could build other rebuilding projects across Little Island. It doesn't have to be some return to pre-contract government and total funding. Sovereignty can be 
I did never get a reclaiming Lord of Wittgenstein. Uh, by different families, for example, John Lequanman, third one. What are your thoughts about the type of indigenous revitalization project? Well, I think they're great. And, um, you know, really, they I think they really began probably back in the, the 1960s and 1970s, these types of activities where people were reclaiming uh, fishing spots, fishing rights and stuff like that. Uh, there was uh, reclamations of land that were that really started, you know, with the American Indian Movement and the whole Red Power Movement after Alcatraz, uh, 1969, 1970 or whatever. There was a huge wave of land reclamations that spread all across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, some of them, I think, still exist today. I mean, some of them became a little institutionalized. They became legalized or whatever. Uh, there's one that really stands out, and I have a page on it in the new comic, which is Ganyange which was a Mohawk territory that was basically liberated through armed force in uh, the mid-1970s in New York State. There was a, a long standoff with the New York State police. Uh, they ended up negotiating for another piece of land, and it still exists to this day, Ganyange. It exists as a sovereign Mohawk territory. They have checkpoints. The police cannot enter that territory. Um, so these things have a, a longer history than just recently. Uh, another one that I think is really important to know about is uh, Shudikath, which is uh, a Statlium uh, reclamation or reoccupation or whatever up near uh, Mount Curry. And they've existed since, I think, uh, 2000 or 2001. So it's like over 20 years now. They've, they've had a village they established on so-called crown land, and that was to stop this massive ski resort that uh, – a corporation wanted to build up on this untouched uh, alpine area. And these things are really important, I think, because uh, it can really help the community because it's something positive that they can get involved in. It's got uh, goals that are achievable, um, you know, depending on the context. But, you know, a lot of these land reclamations have been fairly successful. Uh, I think Umistaten, you know, they've been there for years and they still have their structures despite the police going in and taking down the blockades and stuff like that. Uh, I think it's really healthy for communities. Uh, they, they're the youth and people can get involved. Um, they can learn a lot of traditional skills being out on the land. And uh, I think it helps build community. So I think these things are really positive. Um, and they, uh, you know, these little victories, they, they empower people too. So I, I think they're uh, really important things to be, be doing. And and I know that, I know that uh, you're, Speaking from, um, we we can't all be on the ground for each of these recommendation projects. But uh, from your knowledge, what are some of the things that these communities that are autonomous and, and run uh, that are sovereign are they are they going back to traditional skills and something of of relying on the land, of relearning the language, uh, in 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 traditional government. What what are some of the things that the community are are building or revitalizing that are keeping them together? Well, I think there are there's a lot of variety in these different re- reclamations and reoccupations that have occurred. Um, I mean, with Ganyange, they really tried to be totally self-sufficient. They tried to set up uh, 
agriculture, you know, which is a, a tradition of the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations uh, Confederacy. It's a tradition of theirs, you know, farming, uh, the squash, beans, and uh, corn, the Three Sisters, and all that. So they really tried to set up a self-sufficient sovereign community, but I think they, they had a lot of uh, difficulty doing that. And nowadays they have more modern businesses. I think they have a bingo, a bingo hall. Uh, they have some other modern, like maybe a, a carpentry thing, a mill of some kind, some things like that. So they've had to adopt to the modern conditions of living in a capitalist society because these traditional ways of life, I mean, they were developed over thousands of years. They, they required a community to live like this. Uh, you know, they, the, the traditional forms of governance re required the people as a whole to be participating. And so you, you don't really find, you're not going to find the same conditions, I don't think, today, because you have divisions in the community. Some are supportive of the Indian Act Band Council. Some are very pro-capitalist, very pro-business. And then you have the traditionalists that, uh, you know, they want to relearn traditional skills and stuff like that. But some of them might, they don't really understand capitalist system and stuff. So there's a lot of variety in how these reclamations have played out. So some of them have really tried to be self-sufficient. Some of them have tried to uh, reestablish traditional forms of governance. Um, some of them really focus on relearning traditional skills, like, you know, for example, building a pit house. I mean, that requires a lot of knowledge and skill. Uh, uh, just things like that. So there's a lot of variety. And um, yeah, there's uh, it just, just a lot of different ways people are trying to establish uh these these land reclamations and it, you know it really depends on the, the people involved and even the terrain that they're in i think can have a big influence uh the resources at their disposal uh when i talk about terrain i think one of the problems ginyange had was the the land that they actually chose just wasn't uh super suitable for growing uh farming so things like that can play a big uh big factor but yeah a lot of variety. <laughs> I, I can anotic ally, Tetler ally, um, looking at it from the outside and being aware of the division that it did in so many communities because of the band council did them because of, uh, because of, uh, religion, colonial religion, capitalism, invasion, all the things. Um, is it possible to heal those divide in, in uh, a lot of the, in a lot of those communities or do you think that the division are permanent? Yeah, I just uh, lost my internet for a second. Well, I, I, from what I, I can, I heard of your question, I would say, in some communities, these divisions have become, uh, you know, they became very uh, deadly, right? Like if you look at uh, uh, the Pine Ridge Reservation in the early 1970s with the American Indian Movement and the, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Cointel Pro, the Goon Squad that was organized by the tribal president, Dick Wilson. I mean, some of these divisions can obviously become very deadly and it's a civil war. So you have you know, a lot of people were killed in the early 1970s on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I think more recently, if you see, uh, you look at Akwesasne, you have a, a small civil war between uh, what was labeled traditionalists and more modern, uh, I don't even, it's hard to describe the division uh, simply, but you do have these divisions that can become lethal and they become like a civil war. 
And this isn't just in indigenous communities, but you can see this in, you know, almost every other community in the world can, you know, degenerate into a civil war. You almost see a civil war about to break out in the United States of America right now. Uh, so some communities, this, the situation has, has escalated to such a point that you're, you're entering into a civil war and you have two armed factions. At least you could have more that are going to fight for control or power or whatever. Um, in some communities, it hasn't reached that point and there's a much greater potential for some kind of unity to come about. I think one of the things we see in a lot of resistance actions, when you don't see a really harsh division in the community, it can unite a lot of factions in the community. I think you know, maybe that helped, happened with Elsie Pugtug. I, don't, I can't speak with authority, but I mean, you saw the even the Indian Act Band Council was like marching in the protests even though I think they were involved in some shady uh, politics and negotiating with the government and the police. But I think generally uh, in some of these acts of resistance, you see the community will actually unify and all these divisions about religious beliefs and politics and stuff. A lot of these are kind of uh, minimized because now you actually have something that you need to work together if you want to stop this. So again, I think there's differences in how communities are going to, uh, how they're going to mobilize and how, how, uh, harsh these divisions are and it just depends on local conditions and the context so you're, you're saying good that there is hope we uh it just depends on the on the conditions and the structure for people to heal and come together against organization you you feel that there's enough positive examples of unity that this can become more widespread. Yeah, I don't know about I don't know about that. Um, I, I mean, I think the way the world's going right now, I think you're just you're going to have like systemic collapses occurring. You already have a number of failed states around the world. It, you know, um, I think this type of instability and, and chaos and conflict is just going to increase. And I think people are are going to bond. Uh, get together in their local areas. And I think new communities are probably going to form out of all of this. Um, I mean, that's, that's the hope for the future, really, uh, you know, especially with the climate crisis we're facing. Um, I mean, I do have hope for the future, but it's going to be a dark, a dark uh, passageway till we get through this because this system is like, it's, it's a global system. There's millions of people uh, that support it. Uh, Everyone's trying to, a lot of people are just like trying to survive. So I think it's, uh, it's going to be a very, uh, very difficult times coming up. But I mean, I'm hopeful because of that, because that's like, that's the opportunity we have to, you know, really to, for people around the world to kind of like start over again and try to build something new. But I mean, it's a, it's a hard place we're in as, as human, as human beings on this planet and looking at the state of the environment right now, um, you know, there's just been so much environmental change and so much environmental crises going on. People are going to have to really adopt and uh, in order to survive, I think. So survival comes first before we build community, you think? Well, I think, I think they're both. I mean, I don't, I don't think you're going to survive unless you have community. Uh, you just be isolated individual, you know, uh, vulnerable to any marauding group. Uh, it's going to be, it's so much harder to be self-sufficient in terms of growing food and gathering. Like you really need a community. That's why 
almost every indigenous tribal people around the world, in Europe, Africa, Asia, I mean, it was community. You had a nation. That's how you survived. So that's what I think that's what the key to the future is. And if you look at a lot of these, uh, the right wing survivalists, they're very individualistic. But at the same time, they're forming groups, which are these militias, heavily armed militias. But one thing they don't have, I don't think they don't really have the community thing that, you know, the left or anarchists or indigenous people or uh, the black communities, Latino communities. I don't think they have uh, as much cohesion that that we're that we will be able to generate because they're so individualistic. And I think they're really isolated. Um, I think just their culture of the right, the far right, it just kind of speaks against uh, community organizing. It's more about like a, setting up an armed dictatorship kind of thing. So the danger from the far right is their armed capability, which we need to take seriously. I think the left, the anarchists, the indigenous people, black people, the Latinos and all that, like that's something we have to take more seriously um, and thinking about conflict in the future. Um, I really advocate for people to get their PALS here in Canada, which is their possession and acquisition license so that they can get firearms, so they can get training. If Unless you're a vegan or vegetarian, you can also go hunting because that's going to be part of your self-sufficiency survival uh, method going into the times when, uh, the, you know, we're not going to be able to go to the grocery store, for example. But also we have to have the capability for self-defense. Oh, what you're saying is that um, we need to be taking the right-wing military opposition uh, more seriously and realizing that these guys have an agenda too. And despite the individualism, they still present clear and present danger, correct? Absolutely, yeah. If you look at the history of indigenous uh, anti-colonial resistance, I mean, these firearms played a big role, and that was why some nations were actually able to resist a lot stronger than others is because they were able to exploit uh, European trade networks, and they were able to acquire large amounts of firearms and ammunition. And in some cases, they were able to exploit the division and competition between these European traders to become fairly well armed. And that's how they were able to actually uh, resist colonial forces for a much longer time than some other nations were. So history tells us uh, you can't just be a good person and have good moral character and have a nice community and you're going to survive an armed attack by some group that wants to take control of you and your land. And so I think as we go into the future, we, you know, these lessons of history are something we need to keep in mind. So that brings me into my last question before we start wrapping up. Um, Pacifism, do you think it gets in the way of all the things you get mentioned? Reclaiming land, uh, self-defense, sustainment. Uh, do you, um, what, what role do you think Pacifism plays in, uh, co-opting, uh, resistance movement and more or less dampening the energy? of those who want to be anti-colonial and anti-capitalist. So um, can you speak to that a little bit about how Bacchivism played a role for the state in in getting the uh, colonial agenda uh, furthered? Yeah, sure. I think, uh, yeah, pacifism is definitely, it's an ideology that 
it really only arose in the last 120 years or so. And it really, you know, it really took root with Gandhi and the anti-colonial uh, movement in India. And, and if you look at that case, I mean, Gandhi was, was basically promoted by the British in order to counter the revolutionary radical armed movements that were arising and challenging British control. And so they basically promoted Gandhi. And to this day, I mean, if you look at the people that they really promote, like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, both pacifists, both advocated nonviolent civil disobedience. And that's what the state promotes. I mean, that's why America celebrates Martin Luther King with a holiday and they have major highways and libraries and buildings named after Martin Luther King because they're trying to raise up his status as this is an example of how you organize a resistance. But they don't do that for Malcolm X because Malcolm X was a revolutionary and a radical and he promoted armed self-defense. And so I think you, I mean, just right there, you can see why the state promotes pacifism because it's a lot easier to control. It doesn't challenge the state in, you know, really, it doesn't really challenge the state. They're able to maneuver and co-opt these movements much more easily than a radical militant movement. And you can look at many examples. There's Frank Kitson, who was a British army officer involved in counterinsurgency operations for the British army in Africa and Northern Ireland. And if you look at his book, uh, Low Intensity Operations, or, or low, in low Intensity Operations or Low Intensity Conflict, I mean, he talks about using these moderates, these pacifists, to counter the radical revolutionary militant movements. And he calls it drowning the revolution in baby's milk. And so you just have all these examples of why the state promotes pacifism and why they they so they fear and they demonize so much the militant resistance that arises. I mean, look at what's happening in the United States with Antifa and the Black Bloc, the demonization of them. And yet, the, you know, they're militant and they're radical, but they they haven't killed anybody. But they raise the Antifa and the Black Bloc up to the same level as these far right militias and white supremacists that have killed scores of people over the last decade in the United States, because that's, that's what they fear is that militancy when people rise up and it's like, we're not going to negotiate, you know, we have our goal and we're going to organize and we're going to, we're going to achieve our objective because the, the pacifists and the moderates are always open to negotiations. You know, they're basically reformists and the state uses them to stabilize the system. So that's, you know, the main problems with uh, pacifism is it really does disarm the people. It, it weakens their fighting spirit. It weakens their resistance. And so I, I and, you know, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there are people who are pacifists. And so that's why we use a diverse, we use the approach of having and respecting a diversity of tactics. Because if people want to be nonviolent and just use civil disobedience, well, that's an important tool as well. Because sometimes our movements can't be militant and can't go in hardcore, whatever. And so sometimes we have to adopt tactics that aren't as militant. And that's the civil disobedience. So I don't go around smearing people because they engage in uh, civil disobedience. Sometimes that's the, the most practical tactic in at the present time in the situation, in the context or whatever. So I think it's really important to have a respect for a diversity of tactics. But one thing in my experience I found is that pacifists, because they're so ideologically motivated, it's almost like a religious cult. They generally don't have much respect for a diversity of tactics. So that's why I do have a lot of 
a criticism of pacifists who become in, involved in movements and really try to police those movements and tell people what they can and cannot do and all this type of stuff. So, yeah. So, the different what you're saying, there's a difference between using nonviolent as a tactic and having a movement built on nonviolent as your model dear way of addressing at your anti-colonialism, right? Yeah, well one one is like using nonviolence as a tactic. The other is is using nonviolence as an ideology. Okay. Right? And so I think that's a big distinction. And the the hardcore pacifists are ideologically motivated. Um, I mean, I say uh, they'll, they'll show up at struggles and they'll be like, well, at least we're nonviolent, even though we didn't stop the pipeline. You know, to them, the most important thing is that they maintain their nonviolent uh, moral superiority type of thing, rather than being what was the, what's the most effective way to stop this pipeline. Their thing is like, well, at least we stayed nonviolent. So. Yeah, the ideologically motivated pacifists are a big problem, in my opinion. Okay. Thank you, Dwight. And I think that contact and knowledge is so important. So your website, Warrior Publication, I know was a great thought for me and other uh, allies and anarchist allies. Um, is, there, is your website uh, up and running again, or are there other sources where people can gain contact and knowledge about the subject that we were talking about today? Well, the website is still up, so people can access. There's, there's, there's articles. I think I, I don't know. I had it like for ten years or longer. I maintained that website, so there's a huge archive of history right there. There's a lot of documents that I published that are you know you can download from there. Uh, so it's it can still be a, a useful resource for people. I don't update it though anymore, and I haven't updated it probably for the last couple of years really. Uh, okay. So it's not active. It's not actively being updated, but it's still there for people to access. Great. In terms of other resources, uh, there's just like kind of like native news online. There's like some native websites. I can't really think of anyone in particular right now, but anyway, the Warrior Publication site still exists, and you can still order T-shirts from it as well. <laughs> great, great, great. Well, so folks, uh, please be sure to go to warriorpublication.com. There's a lot of good stuff on there, um, and please use it as a resource. Good left it up there for that reason, and also if you wanna. Uh, pick up a copy of good new, uh, Thomas Bush, 500 years of redemption. Then go to Thomas Bush if you're on, if you're on unseated requirement and what kind of territory in so-called Victoria BC, uh, on Quadrant Street. Thomas Bush and InfoCop, uh, on Quadrant Street in Victoria. And we have many copies of good new book plus other previous work that he done and lots of other resources. So come check it out and start your decolonization journey with us. So uh, I would like to thank you, God, for taking the time today. Uh, 
we we draw Domat from a person like you. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. All right. And uh, on behalf of the uh, the Gloria and uh, the Collective, the end. What a lame Sunday. I hate it. Let's check Facebook. Ugh, Facebook. What is this? Food not bombs? Cook yummy food? Meet cool people. Stop food waste. No experience necessary. Not Bombs is serving free meals to everyone, Sundays, 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Come eat with us, drop off food, or support our kitchen. We are looking for volunteers to help chopping, cooking, and serving food, or to help with computer tasks. Check Food Not Bombs Victoria on Facebook to find out where we cook. For inquiries about volunteering, and to join our listserv, Please mail to vicfnb at lists.resist.ca or check out our Facebook page, Food Not Bombs Victoria. Food Not Bombs, free meals every Sunday at 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Free the food!